Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CE curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. So now we have some time for discussion. Ruben, thank you for joining us. Um, Ruben, maybe you want to make some comments on some of your own thoughts um, on the guidelines? Um, yeah, definitely. I, I guess I'll pose a question to both Mike and Val, and it's sort of in relation to the guidelines and the PBR threshold. Um, so far, no trials have included patients who've had a PBR between two and three, or anything sort of just north of two, less than five, really. Um, do you think clinical trials in the future are going to move in the direction where they're going to start to include patients that have a PBR north or between two and three? And if so, what should those trials look like? Um, I do know of one trial that's starting to include patients with a PBR I, greater than two. I think the. I think the entry criteria for the clinical trials will change. They will lower the threshold. Maybe not in the phase twos where PBR is the primary endpoint, because if you get too many people with a low PBR, you don't really have an opportunity to make a treatment effect. But I, I think for the phase threes where PBR is not the primary endpoint, that they'll change it. I still think there will be a very small number of patients with a PBR of less than three, and it'll be difficult for us to really make any any academic um, conclusions on those patients. I'll ask to come off of that or comment on that. Do we think, or do you think, Val or, and Ruben, do you think the flaw in the guidelines, or if we want to call it a flaw, or uh, the question in the guidelines, is it around the definition, or is it that they didn't address how we should be treating patients with a PBR 2 to 3, right? Because as you think about guidelines, I think for the group in general, I like the data that shows that the PVR is associated with an increased mortality in patients. I agree with you. That population, it's probably all diastolic dysfunction, all COPD. But from a guideline standpoint, as we're trying to identify patients at risk for bad outcomes, would it make more sense to include the definition of a PVR greater than two units because we're trying to identify and push people to identify patients earlier, but did the guidelines fall short by not saying specifically, these are patients you probably shouldn't be treating. These are patients that maybe we should be optimizing lung disease and heart disease, and then make a statement to the effect of the treatment of patients is based on the classic definition of pH, where the PVR is higher, where we truly think these patients have group one PAH. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, and I think they, maybe they didn't emphasize treatment of comorbidities. And I don't think they emphasized the limitations of that VA database that they, that led to that. Um, but I do think they, they have in the guidelines, they make it very clear that we have no data on treating patients with a PVR between two and three and more research needs to be done. You know, I think in reality in group one PAH, at least in my practice, outside of um, the scleroderma patients, our scleroderma program very aggressively screens. We cath everybody with a positive detect score, and we definitely find some patients with PVRs between two and four via that mechanism. But outside of that, I, I think it's pretty rare for us to get a true group one patient with a PVR between two and three. I agree. Yeah, I like I like the idea that they sort of based it a little bit on that PA data. I know they age adjusted and adjusted for some comorbidities, so it's nice to know that there is a high risk population of a PBR greater than two, and it leads to these all cause mortalities. I think what it behooves us as clinicians and 
researchers in the space is just to study this group and sort of see how many of these patients who, if we do capture them with a PVR between two and three, how many of them progress? What do they look like? Are they are they just your left-sided disease patient or your group three patients? And yeah. um, would treating them at that have any sort of meaningful clinical impact? And I, I think all of us would suspect that at that low of a PVR, it's less likely to sort of make a, a true meaningful impact and maybe just sort of worsen their treatment burden. I think, again, defining what treatment means, right? I don't think necessarily the idea that, you know, maybe treating the patient with a, a PVR of two to three is really just aggressive diuresis, blood pressure control, comorbid conditions, and then that's it for those patients, right? Yeah. Victor? So I have a couple of questions. Um, one is related to the PVR threshold, which I fully agree with the panel, but um, is there any subgroup that you would consider maybe in special occasions using that lower threshold to, to treat? Uh, maybe it's a scleroderma population, maybe it's the portopulmonary hypertension patients who, who have uh, such a worse kind of prognosis compared to the rest. And, and the other question is, um, we, we talked a lot about the European risk uh, stratification model, but uh, where do you put the, the reveal score and the reveal light score in, into all these schemes? Yeah, to answer your first question first, uh, I think you hit it on the head. It, it's For me, I, I am treating the scleroderma patients. So when our scleroderma program screens the patients with detect and we cast them, if their PBR is 2.5, I'm, I'm going ahead and treating them. I'm using monotherapy uh, in them, but we know the scleroderma patients have a poor prognosis. They've, they, um, you know, a, a single therapy in patients like that, you know, whether they would have stayed well for a number of years or not. Um, I have many patients who've done well on single therapy for a long, long time. Um, let, let me ask you guys to answer that question before we yeah. go to the risk stratification. I've obviously not been in the practice nearly as long as you. And, okay, uh, don't call me old. <laughs> right. But I'll, I'll agree, the, the, I think the two in my short tenure here that I've treated with a PVR north of two but less than three have been the scleroderma patient population. Uh, like, like you mentioned, uh, Victor. Um, so I think that population I would think pretty heavily about treating for it because of their poor prognosis. The portal pulmonary hypertension, I think that's the second population you mentioned. Uh, maybe this is my bias, but I, I would say that if we think that they have portal pulmonary hypertension, they have a PVR between two and three, I think I'm starting to push the transplant teams to think about, we have them in a good space, we should think a little bit more about that because we know our pH therapy, while it's beneficial, um, it can lead to some more poor outcomes than that with ascites and varices and all that stuff. Yeah, I agree. The portal, I think I uh, agree with what Ruben said and Val said about the scleroderma population. I go back to the idea of maybe the epi data that shows the PVR is elevated should be pushing us to say, are there other populations that we should be more aggressively screening and studying to find out like scleroderma they came to? But the portopulmonary patients, I think, are specifically a pretty interesting question, right? As Ruben alluded to, I think those lower PVR patients, um, maybe they are people that we should be treating. But I'm sure, you know, we've all seen the 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 patient that we know has portopulmonary, think has portopulmonary. You put them on pulmonary vasodilator therapy, and all of a sudden they transition into the high output liver failure patient where they're getting more ascites and they've got more edema and everything. So I like that idea of sort of watching them closely and maybe treating aggressively, but it's a, I think a, a higher risk population than a scleroderma patient. And then on to the reveal risk score. So this has been a subject of debate for a long time. And, um, you know, I think there are a couple points to be made. The full reveal score 
I, I think is a very accurate prognostic determinant, and it takes into account some of the non-modifiable risk factors that do influence prognosis. So such as etiology, like portal, like CTD, like heritable, um, things that, you, you know, other things you can't change, such as age and, well, gender, sort of. But um, so it takes some of those into account. So it's good in terms of prognosis, but those aren't things that you can target uh, with therapy, right? And so so reveal to light, I think, is really this the six modifiable variables that you can target. And we, um, Tom, Victor, and I, we, we use both reveal lights two and the four strata. Um, we have a flow sheet and it just gets those scores appended to the um, uh, the end of our note. And, you know, I think the main point about risk stratification is just just do it, whether you want to use four strata, whether you want to use reveal light two, whether you use both of them, you, you just do it. You need something objective. Now, it's not perfect. And, you know, the cases that I'll present this afternoon are really meant to illustrate the, some of the limitations of risk stratification. But I think it's just really key to do it in everyone and then react to it and, and intensify therapy if appropriate. Which, what do you guys use? We use primarily Reveal because you're, so for those of you who maybe don't live in the world of pulmonary hypertension all the time, interested, right? There, the, there's a couple different risk scoring systems that we use. And in the United States, there was the Reveal registry from two, enrolled from 2006, 2007. Eventually the Reveal risk score came out of that. But in the last couple of years, a bunch of publications out of Europe for different scoring systems that the Europeans use. And that's the difference between our guidelines here and why they talk about, um, other risk scoring systems versus reveal. But we, um, we just years ago when we were um, working within our system, we built the reveal risk score into our Epic uh, system. So we primarily use reveal and it's the complete reveal, not reveal light. That's just what's built into our system. But I agree. It's just more important when we think about the treatment of pH, whatever one you want to use, you just make sure you're using it and you are risk stratifying your patients and using that in your conversations with patients about how do we manage you? What's the best treatment for you? Do, do you guys use BNP or NT Pro? We are BNP at Northwestern. Okay. Downtown. Outside of downtown, they'll use NT Pro BNP. So it's inconsistent within the Northwestern healthcare system. So that's one of the issues with Reveal, right? Like the, the Reveal risk score for biomarkers is really essentially built for BNP and the NT Pro. You just have the value in the very lowest group and the very highest group. And if your NT Pro is in between, yeah. you, you know, it doesn't really fall anywhere. Um, I, I think, so the advantages to reveal outside of, you know, that, that, that issue with NT Pro, I think it brings other things into, into consideration, right? The vital signs, the kidney function, you know, with only three variables in the, the four strata, like if you have a really horrible walk for another reason, like it really affects your score. And, you know, there's other things to compensate for that in reveal. Tom, did you have a question? I was just going to ask a question to everyone. So we've talked about the hemodynamic definitions and they've changed and the, the mean PA pressure's changed, the PVR has changed. The one that hasn't changed is the wedge. Oh, that's a great point. Uh, do you foresee changes to it? And uh, if you do, how would, how will you use it? Uh, in your practice. You know, that's a great point, Tom, and I, I, I should have uh, brought that up uh, because they they lowered the mean PA to 15, but like really is a wedge of, 
I mean, they lower the mean pH to 20. But is a wedge of 15 really normal? Which, like, if my wedge was 15, I don't think so. I would be very happy, right? Like, if you read Grossman's textbook of cast, like, Dan, it's 12, right? Isn't it 12 in any cast textbook? Yeah. So, so a left heart filling pressure of 12 is really the upper limits of normal. So it's a little disingenuous to lower the mean pay, PA, lower the PBR, and leave the wedge at 15, right? Because you're really going to let the diastolic heart failure patients who've been moderately diuresed kind of squeeze in there. I agree with you. I do not know of, well, I actually, I don't know if they're addressing this at the next world symposium in that group. I hope they are. I should look at that outline and ask them to address it if they're not. I think along those lines, like whether or not um, additional maneuvers during cath would be included in, in the guidelines, whether or not wedge sat should be sort of mandated in, in the diagnostic red heart cath or um, volume challenging, for instance, to sort of unmask the diastolic dysfunction to it. That's a good question. Uh, yep, please. Thanks, guys. Um, so question that I had is your incorporation of exercise cath um, in the management and then also early treatment, especially keeping, I think, with the theme of what we've been discussing recently with lower PBR and, you know, a lowering of mean PA pressure and really thinking about those scleroderma patients. So I think there was one that I can at least recall off the top of my head study looking at like ambrosentin, I think, from like over 10 years ago and exercise induced pH patients. So that definition has certainly now changed, I think, for the better. And so um, I feel like our practice at Northwestern, we've seen a lot of patients where they may have normal resting hemodynamics and then also multiple risk factors, an older patient with like group two as well as group one risk factors, unclear exactly what the pathophysiologic, you know, primary driver is based on non-invasive testing. So they'll undergo exercise right heart cath and see one, is this really exercise-induced HEFPEF or is it exercise-induced pulmonary vascular disease? So just curious to hear about others' practices and then for those patients, particularly, again, thinking of scleroderma, higher risk, are you starting to treat those patients when they have normal resting hemodynamics? And oftentimes, they'll still have a normal RV, I find, but then have exercise-induced you know, pulmonary vascular disease. Are you treating yeah. exercise-induced pH in it's, scleroderma? And it's, it's a great question. Yeah. So um, Scott Bizzabadi, who is one of our partners who's moved on to that institution that shall not be named, um, in his K award... Um, he did exercise casts on scleroderma patients. Like we screened all these scleroderma patients, and if they had normal resting hemodynamics, he exercised them all. Uh, and almost all the time, their their exercise pH was because their wedge pressure went up. So, you know, com common things happen commonly. Diastolic heart failure is really, really common, and so it's it's very common to see that as the etiology. Um, if a patient is with scleroderma that we exercise, so their resting hemodynamics are normal, the RV is normal, we're cathing them because they screen positive on detect or something like that, and we exercise them, and they have exercise pulmonary vascular disease, and their, their slope is high, their PA pressures go up, but their wedge pressure doesn't, um, I may or may not treat them depending on how symptomatic they are. You know, if they're symptomatic, if, you know, if they have exertional dyspnea and I don't have another reason for it, then I'll offer them treatment and follow them closely. If they're not symptomatic, we, we've just been following those patients. I don't know if that's right or wrong. That's just what, what we've been doing. So do you think then, based on the data of the prodigal son who's gone off <laughs> elsewhere, um, do you think that um, 
especially a high risk patient population like scleroderma that he was cathing, do you think those wedge elevations are accurate in that population? Do you think an elevated wedge is in a in an otherwise normal person is a precursor to PAH? Or do you really think all of those scleroderma patients just have diastolic dysfunction and none of them would go on to develop PAH? Um, it's a good question. You never know for sure, but they are that that population of, you know, older, primarily women, often yeah. with comorbidities. And, you know, so I, I feel it's very likely to, that we're eliciting diastolic heart failure. Yeah. I mean, Yasmin and, and Ruben, you can comment too. I agree. I think that's a challenging population both to identify and get drug therapy for if we think they need to be treated. Although, you know, I do feel like, especially in scleroderma, we see patients when they have established PH over years, then eventually going on to develop what maybe looks more like they have left-sided heart disease as well. They get elevated wedges later on. Like the underlying cardiac pathology in these patients, I think, is interesting, right? And maybe early PAH has sort of a diastolic flare, and then some of those patients go on to develop PAH, and some of them go on to develop more cardiac disease. It's interesting. Yeah, it, it, it's also the longer we keep people alive with PH therapies, the more likely they are to get other diseases. Yeah. I mean, we've probably had more than a half dozen patients now with scleroderma that, that have been alive for decades that go on to develop AS. And, you know, so... Um, yeah, so I think those things are coming. I have one question, and I think it's unfair to try and answer this in the two minutes that's on the clock. In front of us, minutes, but, yeah. um, <laughs> with the addition of potentially new medications that are coming to market in 2024 with a disease-modifying drug like Sotatercept, or potentially disease-modifying like Sotatercept, how do you see drugs like that in the treatment algorithm, as uh, Dr. Kudika just presented on, on there? And this is for both you two. Um, do you see it as a drug to be deployed in um, intermediate risk patients? Do you see it in place of prostanoid or alongside prostanoid? How do you sort of see that fitting in, in in a real world landscape of treating patients with PAH? Do you want to go first? No, I'd like you to go first. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so there's a lot of buzz about Cetatercept, which is uh, an active in ligand trap, basically, and intended to rebalance the proproliferative and antiproliferative functions of the, the BMPR2 active in pathway. Um, so we have to think first about the data that we have. And the data that we have about Cetatercept is in a highly pretreated prevalent population. So the, the mean duration of disease in patients that were enrolled into the stellar trial was nine years. Um, you know, probably I think it was like, you know, 40% of them were on parenteral therapy, 60% of them were on triple therapy. So uh, that's the data that we have. So we need, we need to think about that. Now, it was, you know, very, very effective in that population. So that really does give you um, confidence the drug is doing something. If you can really make impact on top of a, a, a pre-treated patient population like that, a 40-meter improvement in six-minute hall walk, and it, it hit eight of the nine secondary endpoints, like really, really remarkable. We do not have data at this time about using this earlier in the course of the disease. There's a trial going on, Hyperion, looking at adding it to patients who do not meet low risk status within the first year of disease. And we do not have that much data in the really super sick patients. So there's a trial going on, Zenith, about that. 
Um, when we think about the really super sick patients um, that you know you're alluded to, like do you, you what risk status do you use it? And you know the one thing I would like to point out that is that um, while this drug had a remarkable effect on pulmonary artery pressure, a mean dec a decrease in mean pulmonary artery pressure of about 14, it really didn't affect cardiac output at all. So when you think about those really super sick patients, I don't think this is a replacement for prostacyclins, right? Like like. We, people with a cardiac index of 1.7, they need a parenteral prostacyclin. So I think that part of your question is easy to answer. Um, where where I think it's likely to come in is um, no sooner than a third-line agent. I think we have such great data with upfront double combination therapy with ERA-PDE5. Um, those are uh, relatively well-tolerated, you know, probably less expensive than what this is going to be. So I, I think that's still going to be the first line. And for patients who do not meet low risk, um, for patients who are intermediate risk, you know, not the, the super sickies that still need prostacyclins, I, I think it's likely to be the, the next agent that we go to after that. I agree. I think that's your question is going to be answered in the next five years. If and when it gets approved, it'll be in background therapy patients and then clinical practice will guide what happens in the post-marketing studies and these clinical trials that are going on now to figure out where it fits into the guidelines. I can see clinically patients struggling with the options that, that they may be alluded to on whether it's patient support groups or elsewhere oh, yeah. when, they, when they're faced with a provider who says it's parenteral prostanoid time versus I have a drug I could take sub-Q once every three weeks. That's another really interesting point, right? Because the buzz out there is this cures the disease and there are patients that are already saying, hey, I want to be on this drug because it's going to reverse it. You tell me when it's available and I'm going on it. And I think that's going to be a real problem. All right. Well, this has been a great discussion. Um, I'm really excited to go on to the um, next session. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME, LLC and is part of our Minute CE curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.